Welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first-year initiatives. So fortunate to have with us today, um, Naomi Sig from Case Western Reserve University. Um, Naomi has such an amazing and extensive biography or, and, and has done such incredible work. So I apologize if it's like a really small font. Naomi, I wanted to fit in so much good stuff that you've No seen. problem. And at Case Western, Naomi serves as Director of Multicultural Affairs. Um, and, and you've done such really fascinating and important work there. I mean, you've, um, with your team, you've developed this Diversity 360 educational module, which over um, 10,000 students looked like, um, faculty and staff have participated in. Um, you're, you're recognized really internationally um, as a speaker, um, and you've received important accolades because of your really um, critical work um, around supporting um, diversity and uh, equity and inclusivity initiatives on campus. So we're, we're thrilled to have you with us today. I mean, it is truly such an honor. And um, I know we've got many folks on the call. Um, as I was telling Naomi before we joined, I had the opportunity to chat with someone from Chattanooga State University who, yesterday who was just thrilled. Um, she's sort of uh, Naomi groupie. So <laughs> um, you know, she was, she was so thrilled to get to um, log in today and, and listen to you. So um, I do want to remind folks, um, uh, folks have asked about presentation materials. Um, Crystal's been kind enough to chat that link in. Um, Naomi provided us lots of resources, and I know there are additional ones out there. Um, so those are linked um, in today's um, slides. I think it's the second to last slide. You'll find uh, hyperlinks to various resources. Um, as always, we love to hear from you. So if you want to share where you're from, if you have questions, um, feel free to chat those in. Um, just make sure it says all panelists and attendees so that um, we can all read that. So, um, and as always, um, in our Friday Five Live, um, we have some questions, uh, but we do, you know, love to hear from our audience as far as um, things that I wasn't perhaps smart enough to think to ask Naomi. So, Naomi, welcome and thank you. Um, we had the chance to talk, I guess, last month or so um, on the phone and kind of make an initial um, con connection. And you know, you were so gracious in offering to kind of share some of your own personal experience, um, you know, as an opportunity to kind of frame the conversation that we're going to have today. So I really am excited to learn and hear from you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate everyone being on this uh presentation today. Um, and I, you know, I hope that it can be a little bit more of a, an informal dialogue, <laughs> which is a little different than my presentations in the past, a lot of uh, PowerPoint slides and things. So I just wanted to share a little bit about myself, my journey, my experience. I think that that will help in understanding maybe some of the, maybe some similar lived experiences of other APIDA, Asian Pacific Islander, Desi, um, and Asian American folks here in the United States. Um, so a little bit about me. Um, I came here from the Philippines when I was just shy of being two years old. And I came with my mom only because my dad still had to file paperwork and, and do the things that needed to happen for him to be able to come here to the United States. And it actually took a few years before he was able to join us. And my family, uh, my mom is one of 10 kids. 
um, in her family. And they were beneficiaries of the Immigration Act of 1965, which really opened the door for a lot of folks to be able to come to the United States from, from, a, from Asian countries, which before that had been very difficult. And um, because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, you know, really didn't have, there weren't very many ways for a lot of Asian communities to come and immigrate to the US. So after that, um, you know, my, my family came here. Um, and so uh, my family always told me, my parents always told me that they made that decision, not, li not lightly, because, um, you know, in, in the Philippines, my mom had, was going to uh, school, she wanted to be a surgeon. But, you know, after having me, she really wanted to make sure that I had an, an education um, and had good opportunities and that coming to the United, the United States would be um, sort of that door of opportunity that would give me um, a pathway to an excellent education, which would make my future brighter, right? Which is what you hear from a lot of different immigrant communities. So we moved to a small town in Northeast Ohio. And if you know a little bit about where the Asian population is in the United States, um, the Midwest has the smallest population of the Asian community. Um, the West has almost 60% of our, our Asian communities are in the West of the United, in the Western part of the United States. Um, and so, here we were in a small town um, where many of my cousins and my uncles and aunts, my mom, my grandmother moved here. And of course, it was a, it was a predominantly white community and they didn't really know what to do <laughs> with this family. Um, I remember seeing a news clipping when I was, when I was younger of all of, all of my family having a picture taken at the church that we were going to. And it kind of read something and I don't exactly know what the title was or the headline was, but kind of like, you know, Asian family comes to blank town. Right. You know, so we were one of the few communities of color. And I think we were one of the first um, Asian families to really be a big part of the community where I grew up. And I say this to say that, you know, my upbringing as much as, um, you know, I think was wonderful that we were, were here. Um, it was, it was definitely um, difficult in many ways as well, being one of the few folks of color, um, very few Asian folks in, in the town. And so things would be happening when my, my dad got here and he started a, a job and my mom worked as well and they would work second and third shift so they could take me to school and things like that. But we started to know, I started to notice at least things like our, you know, uh, plants were pulled out of our yard and thrown into the street or our mailbox. I remember clearly when our mailbox was bashed in and, um, you know, we had to get one of those rubber kind of, you know, those plastic ones that you could, you could put in your, in your driveway and it wouldn't kind of get um, knocked down or anything. And, and I noticed that the people who were, this was happening to was my family and then my other families, because we all lived in the same housing development. Um, I also remember getting phone calls where people were harassing my parents and talking about being immigration and that we were going to be deported. Um, and so these things started sticking in my mind. Of why was this happening? Why was I, why was our family being targeted in this way? Um, and then I got older and, and finally the thing that happens a lot, there's a couple of things that I think in a lot of Asian, um, Asian American children's minds that stick. So the first time I brought my own food to school and I 
took it to the microwave and then came and sat down and people kind of laughed about what, what it was and how smelly it was. That was, you know, definitely something that stuck in my mind. And, and actually there's a whole series called like the lunchbox moment for Asian Americans talking about when people have made fun of their food. And then the second moment that really sticks out in my mind was in middle school when finally somebody um, slammed my locker and called me ch- a chink. You know, and I came, I was crying. I came home. I told my mom, the guidance counselor had to talk to my parents. And what my parents said was probably typical of what other Asian families, immigrant families might've said to their children, which is don't worry about it. Ignore it. Just don't, don't, don't let it bother you. Just do better in school, get a better, go to better school, you know, go to college. That's just ignore all those things. So there was a lot of talking about stuffing all of those feelings down. And so it it was, it was difficult. And I think that, and that kind of leads me to, you know, the reason why I'm sharing this too, is because, you know, it is also mental health awareness month. And, and I think for a lot of the, the uh, Asian American communities, these were the messages that then have kind of followed us into our college years. So as we think about, um, you know, expectations to do well, that model minority myth, um, you know, sort of the trauma that we might have endured, but haven't really talked about a lot, um, you know, maybe being isolated and not, and not being around a lot of people who are like us, except for people who are family. Um, those things could follow students to, to their time in, in, in a university. And, and actually, you know, would you, if you are able to look up Kim and then Kadamas, they're two different Asian American identity development models. There's, you know, moments where you have to sort of, um, make a choice. Are you going to sort of cling to your Asian identity or are you going to sort of eschew that and really kind of try to assimilate into more white culture? And so I think that's what I did when I went to college. I tried to sort of be like everyone else. I internalized all of those things, the oppression that was, you know, sort of taught to me by communities, teachers, um, social media, uh, all of that, whether it was about beauty standards or other things. And, um, and I tried to sort of shed my identity, which doesn't last long because I still looked like this back then. And people still treated me um, the way that, that they treated me when I, you know, in college, uh, when I was in um, living in my hometown. And so I really did start to develop a better sense of my identity toward the end of my, my um, senior year. And then in graduate school, when we started looking at identity development, and okay. I also got a chance to meet a lot of different people who were doing um, work around the Asian communities. And MASU was one of those, which is the Midwest Asian American Students Union. So I, I really, I think, was able to get a better sense of my own identity through others and, and student organizations and through external organizations. And then in my time in the, um, the Center for Diversity and Inclusion at my institution. So um, that was just, I think, a haven for me to find people who mm-hmm. wanted to talk to me about my identity. So that's just a little bit about my story. And I, I'm assuming that, of course, every, everybody's lived experience is different, but I'm sure that there are many folks who might have some similar pieces that they could relate to and find um, similar to, to their own story as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Naomi, would you mind sharing one more time the um, in case folks aren't familiar with it, because I think it's always so important that we do um, this work, um, the Asian American identity development model that um, you spoke to. And because I just yeah. wanted to put that in the chat um, for folks in case that's something sure. we're not familiar with. Yes. So there's two um, that I have uh, really kind of looked at. So Corinne Kadama has one on Asian American development 
identity development and she kind of challenges, um, you know, chickering. If you're a student affairs, student development theory, uh, you know, a geek nerd, like, you know, some of us have been in the past. I'm not, I, you know, I remember that feels like a different life, but, um, you know, it's really challenged that saying like these vectors, these things that you're saying, they really don't take into account racism and different identity factors. Um, these, these studies were done on mostly white men. And so this sort of was trying to extrapolate the experiences of the Asian American identity. And then, um, Kim's model, was the model that really kind of started thinking about, you know, the moment where you sort of took one of two paths, you know, the, the path of really clinging to your Asian identity and the one where you sort of tried to do everything you could to sort of assimilate into white culture and, and um, you know, go away from, from the communities. And so those two identity development models are, are really important to me. You know, they're not, they're not ones that I think a lot of people talk about, or you probably learned a lot. If you were in higher ed, you probably didn't spend a ton of time on those, but I think they're really important to, um, to maybe look at and think about and potentially use to help students within your institution. So I'm typing that in as um, Corinne Kadama's work and Kim's model. And um Naomi, we have this amazing connection because Corey and I were in graduate school together and um, Corey Kadama and I love her and we sent oh, her wow. another. Cool. Um, and her work is just, she's been an, an amazingly important teacher in my life. So um, having Very her, cool. I can't, I'm going to text her when we're done and be like, oh my gosh, guess what? Gave you a shout out. So, <laughs> um, well, and I think that speaks so kind of a, a beautiful segue into this you know, next question about uh, this idea of the model minority myth um, and, and how it's so important that all of us understand how incredibly harmful um, this stereotype is. And, and that was something that, you know, you had mentioned very eloquently um, when we had spoken uh, earlier. So we'd love your thoughts on that. So I, I love, I know it's, it's a visual thing, but um, you probably, I don't know if anybody remembers this Time magazine cover um, that was, it just said Asian American whiz kids. And um, it had a picture of all these Asian American kids. I think there was a computer or something in the background. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, there was. So, you know, a computer and a bunch of um, what looked like East Asian students and this idea that, um, you know, I think the model minority myth kind of conveys this idea that the Asian community, Pacific Islander community, um, South Asian community, they're all affluent, academically successful, socioeconomically successful, that they're, you know, good workers, they don't complain, they don't really have a lot of issues around racism. Um, you know, they worked hard as immigrants to do well. Um, they did the whole pull yourself up from your bootstraps thing that the women are submissive, like all of these sort of mm. things that somebody not I don't think it's 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 I think it's probably our dominant identities who think that these are all good things right and um and I think the model minority is extremely harmful um to the Asian community because it does a few things one it erases the individuality and and oversimplifies the complex identities that fall within those uh, that larger community um it sort of just creates this you know conglomerate of everybody is the same where that couldn't be more, more, um, you know, different than the truth. You know, the, the Asian community is extremely diverse. And I'll tell you just, um, if some of you don't know this, the Philippines was actually colonized by Spain for over 300 years, longer than 
being colonized Mexico. And Filipino culture, there are a lot of different um, Spanish sort of influences in there, not just the food, but our language, Tagalog, the main, one of the main languages, Tagalog, actually has Spanish words in it. And so for Filipinos, um, it can be really difficult to think about, you know, uh, the, the their culture being just just like one thing one Asian culture because there's so much there's so many different pieces to it mm-hmm. um, and that same same thing for many of the other Southeast Asian communities that were colonized by places like France um, so uh, like Vietnam and so it, it's important that we think about this there's just a rich history there we don't share a common language. Um, you know, different staples and foods because of how diverse the, the climates and the, the lands are that people are living in. They're very different. Um, customs and traditions can be very different. I think there, there are some similarities. We're not, you know, we've got collectivist societies and, and things like that. But, um, but I think the model minority myth really erases the ability for us to look at how diverse the Asian populations and communities are. Um, I also think that this myth, um, put so much pressure on people uh, to conform to it. Um, I think because I talked about earlier, I remember being in, being in college and just like any other college student, kind of having this moment of, wow, college is a lot harder than high school. And um, to the point where, because I had done so well in high school, like that was expected of me. And I, I, I worked hard and did sort of the, the straight A's and all that kind of stuff. And you know, beta club and NHS and all the things that honestly was what the model minority was kind of telling me to do. Um, when I didn't do well in college, I couldn't handle it. I didn't know how to talk to anybody. I didn't want to seek help. I was ashamed. Honestly, a lot of that shame and that guilt and that fear of failure and of, um, you know, disgracing your family for working so hard to get here and not doing well, that was so difficult for me. And it was something that I didn't know how to I didn't have the help. I didn't have somebody to talk to me about it. And, it, and you know, luckily I did get a really great mentor in residential life who, who sort of came to me and said, listen, I know that you're an A student, but, you know, because clearly this is how you got here, but what's going on that you're not able to sort of do as well academically? And I just needed somebody to, to, to say they believed in me and that, mm-hmm. you know, um, here are some resources and also no, every, no one's perfect in college, like just giving me some of those tips. And that was what it took, but it took until my senior year to get that conversation. And so um, I encourage you, if you do have um, students who you might see some of these red flags that you, you do talk with them and give them those resources. But um, that, that might, that model minority myth can be so powerfully, um, you know, I think, uh, difficult for people to handle that stress and that pressure. I think the model minority myth also erases racism within the Asian communities that kind of makes it seem as though um, everything's fine. Your community doesn't do a lot around protests and um, around, you know, racial injustice, which is different now. Like I will say this right now, we are in a moment, we are in a movement actually, where the Asian community is saying no more. We, We are sick of seeing our elderly being literally stabbed um, as you probably saw a couple of weeks ago, two elderly women were stabbed while waiting at like a transportation st- uh, place, like a bus stop. Um, we're, we're sick of, you know, this this violence the, and not just the violence, but the being ignored and the shunned or the what we talk about, the, ba- the bamboo ceiling and the sticky floor syndrome where we stay at these sort of lower level um you know, positions and companies and organizations and don't meet, we're not seen as leaders. So um, I think that that, you know, 
you know, model minority myth try to tries to ignore all of those mm-hmm. things and doesn't uncover those things. Um, and then, of course, finally, it, it really does pit, I think, the Asian community against other marginalized and minoritized mm-hmm. communities, you know, whereas, you know, you might hear people say, you know, well, isn't there Asian privilege? You know, like Bill O'Reilly said that, isn't there Asian privilege because they're, they make more money and they do well. Well, that was an oversimplification of, of certain communities. So if you look at the Urban Institute, um, they, they show that um, the net worth of Korean Americans is about $23,000, but, but Chinese Americans, it's like $408,000. There's a complete and huge disparity between those communities. And when you think about service, um, positions versus management positions. Our Vietnamese community is 30%, um, a little bit more than 30% of our Vietnamese communities are in service industries versus management positions and you know professional positions. So there's a very different disparity between all the different um, ethnicities. And if we disaggregated the data, we would see that. But oftentimes you see one lumped set of data. Right. And, and then that of course, then creates the pitting against other identities and sort of saying, well, why can't you be like this Asian community to our Latinx community? Or how come you can't be, you know, obedient and, you know, like the Asian community to our African-American communities or, you know, get a better educated. Like these are things that are just, they create this, um, I think they create um, this pitting against these communities because then we can uphold things like, white supremacy because then mm-hmm. we're letting other people fight against each other. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's what I think is really harmful about that model minority myth. And I'm sure there's a hundred more reasons, but those are some of the big ones I can think of. I think that's so, it's so important. Um, and, and I think it, as you said earlier, I think it connects so importantly to, I can think of like mental health needs. I mean, if we're constantly being put from what I hear you saying in this box with this set of expectations, that's such pressure. And um, Bruce has chatted in a question about um, if you have any advice on how we can help students not fixate on, on grades, right. On those, those outcomes and how to focus on the learning of the concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and cause there is so much, uh, you know, um, pressure around grades. And I, um, and I, I know from you know what what you've shared, right? That that can be particularly um, prominent in this community. And so, it, is there any work that you see happening, like within the multicultural affairs and your work at Case Western, that you're like, oh, this has been really helpful to support our students when perhaps they they find, oh, college is very different than high school, or do I really belong here? Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think so things that are coming to my mind are, you know, these are systemic things. So like we're starting to now say things like, you know, your SATs and ACTs aren't the end all be all of why we would admit you to a college or university. See, these those things are are a good start because then you're not focused on, you know, just trying to get the best score on a test, Mm -hmm. which I think we've been doing for decades and decades. Um, I think, you know, for me, as I think about even just now, I have, I have a nine-year-old an 11-year-old and a six-month-old, but trying to celebrate those non-grade, non-sort of academic um, uh, accomplishments that they've had. So for my daughter, uh, you know, of course, balancing, of course, when they do well, you want to celebrate that, but balancing other things. So um, my daughter, uh, she got an honorable mention for a painting, a drawing painting that she did for this PTA thing. And I feel like I praised her more for that because 
what was behind the, the intent of her drawing was this idea that um, friendship across different identities was important um, to the success of our society, <laughs> which is very wise for a child. But, um, right. you know, trying to sort of, I think even with our college students, trying to praise and and um, recognize the other pieces of who they are that they bring to the table that are valuable versus only talking about your worth is what number you get on this test or mm. your worth is what grade you get on that next paper. It's it's about what else you do that, that really helps. So oftentimes I try to um, you know, I had a student just created a video and, and I said, wow, what if, what fantastic skills you have in like being this artist who can sort of create, take a bunch of, of people's stories and then put them into something just seamless and beautiful and produced in such a great way. Like, how do you lift those things up for folks and ask them what else they're, they like to do and what they're good at? I think um, I will never forget. I used to be an advisor for um, a South Asian community group at my previous institution. And I remember the, the time when th this is all student led, they said they were wanted to have a dialogue on their identity. And they said, um, everyone in this room, raise your hand if you are a like pre-med engineering, um, you know, uh, business major. And a lot of people, like probably 90% of the people raised their hand and they said, awesome, that's great. Now raise your hand if you're in anything else. And like, again, 10% of the students raised their hand and just the sheer admiration that the students had for those colleagues who decided to go into dance or theater or something different. And they said, how did you do that? How did you <laughs> tell us more about like what you're doing and why? Tell us more about what you love about that. I just thought that was so interesting because a lot of times um, there is this sort of pressure from families and others and potentially even yourself because it's been internalized into you that you have mm -hmm. to go a certain route and I was one of those kids I was pre-law and all that stuff but realized and my I had to tell my parents this later I said you told me education was so important that it was this door of opportunity that could help make your life better why wouldn't you think I wouldn't go into education like don't you think that that message was just so incredibly pounded into yeah. me that now that's what I want to do I want to open doors for other people. I want everyone to have an educational experience that is inclusive and equitable where they feel like they can be successful. And so I think it, it kind of made sense after that. But um, but yeah, so I think I think those are things you might want to do and, and to identify those students, make sure they get resources, support. I wouldn't make it as a, you know, I, I wouldn't uh, assume that all Asian students are feeling this way, but, but you know, there might be one that you they don't like to talk about their grades or, you know, you can try. I mean, a lot of times we have access to see if people are on probation and things. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's ways for us to then have those conversations. And I would, I would absolutely um, do that or, or work with their academic advisor and just say, Hey, I'm, I'm concerned about the student leader that I know hasn't really seemed to go to class or, um, you know, I'm not sure if, if something's going on academically. So if you don't know, you can always ask a colleague and, and make sure they get resources and help. Mm -hmm. I think that's all fantastic advice. And I'm, um, you know, thinking about last, um, our last Friday Five Live, we had Karen Omi from Florida State University, who they have FSU Strong which is a resiliency program um, and that's come out of um, her work. And um, then there's an, a national the academic resilience consortium um, that actually came out of um, it, uh, our, our kind of Ivy League, you know, elite institutions um, sort of began doing that work around how do we teach 
you know, students who may come to us appearing to have all the resilience, right? Like you've always been successful. So therefore you will just continue to be successful. Um, and then discovering they really didn't have that skill set um, to be able to continue moving forward um, when they hit those sorts of challenges or road bumps or um, questioning of whether or not I'm really good enough to be doing this kind of work thing. Um, so, and I, so I encourage if folks get a chance, um, listen to, to that last episode, that was um, very helpful. And, and they're doing really great work, um, sharing lots of resources, um, you know, freely with um, all of us. I, f- I also feel, you know, we, we talked a lot and I, I, just this morning, I was driving to my kids' middle school and listening to NPR and on the takeaway, they were actually talking about and Naomi, feel free to please correct my um, my language here, but um, it was the anti-Asian American hate legislation that was just passed nationally um, and, and, and the importance of that. And so I, I thought that was such, it was so timely um, considering, you know, our conversation today. And, you know, one of the things we had talked about is that we have seen this kind of drop off in the news cycle mm-hmm. about anti-Asian violence, but I think for those of us who are maybe tuned in, I'm hearing about it, I feel like even more, um, which is important. It's, it's important that those stories get told. Um, what, this is like the million dollar, I feel like question, but what, what kind of actions um, can we take as we listen to you today and we think about our students and the shared experiences that they're having? You know, you and I talked about how so many students have chosen from the API communities have chosen not to return to school this year because of the concern of violence. Um, and, and our middle school is very much has witnessed um, that concern um, in our community. So what are ways that we can be allies, I think, for, for our Asian American and Pacific Islander students and colleagues? Um, and you gave us some wonderful words um, that I've, uh, I'm gonna flip to my next slide, just um, that, that these are some resources that you had shared. And um, so that's been sent out to everyone too. Yep, absolutely. So um, yeah, the first thing I would say that that's really helpful is just to educate yourself first. Um, and then when I say educate, there's so many different ways you can educate, but I really think the the issue that we have here in the United States is that we don't um, provide the history of our Asian community, you know, K to 12. It's, it's very slim, very little information about the contributions, the history of our Asian communities within the U.S., um, starting with the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. So if you look at history photos, there's a photo of um, when they were, when the, the railroad, some of it was completed. There's just a, a bunch of people who are taking this photo and it's all um, white folks and there are no Chinese folks in sight because they cleared them out. <laughs> you wouldn't know that that they were part of building this. Um, you know, people don't know about the, the Chinese Exclusion Act. They don't know about, um, you know, really what happened with the, the Japanese internment or prison camps mm-hmm. and, um, you know, how much people lost, um, how there were folks who tried to escape and were shot. And um, they don't know about Fred Korematsu, who did, did, he did not want to go and, and declined to go. Um, and then, you know, had his case go all the way up to the Supreme Court and where, where he lost, but he became this really well-known um, civil rights uh, activist. And there's even a Fred Korematsu Day, you'll have to look that up, um, you know, in his honor. And, 
you know, people don't know about the Filipinos who actually are documented as the first Asian folks to come to the United States as uh, early as in, I believe, the 1600s, maybe. Um, and those were settlers in the southeast um, where a lot of them were fishers. Um, so, you know, and also the Filipinos were um, part of a lot of the labor movement, labor movements. Um, so looking at folks who worked with Cesar Chavez and, um, you know, I think there's a lack of history on just even some of the big flashpoints of, of racism and, and hate that occurred. So in 1982, a man named Vincent Chin, who was actually of Chinese descent, was murdered by two men, a stepson and a stepfather duo, unfortunately, before his wedding. It was sort of his bachelor party night. Um, he was beaten with a bat and, you know, really sort of uh, really, really hurt to the point where a few days later in the hospital, he died. Um, and the two men did not serve any time in jail. They paid $3,000. And the reason why they uh, you know, were upset with him and attacked him was because they thought he was Japanese. And at the time in the 1980s, what was happening? You know, there was an uptick in the Japanese auto industry in the U.S. And so they were blaming him for the loss of their job or the lot, you know, the, the decline in the American auto industry. And so that actually sparked a lot of, um, you know, Asian Americans sort of uniting and, and wanting justice. And so like this type of stuff we don't hear about, um, you don't talk about it in school and, and you don't talk about um, how there were precursors of Asian children who wanted to go to white schools before Brown versus Board of Education. So there are court cases that are even things that we didn't learn when we were growing up. Um, so that would be one thing. I would, I would very much say educate yourself on the history um, educate yourself on the diversity of the Asian community here in the U.S., um, maybe within your institutions and your cities and surrounding areas, because I think it's important to know that. Um, are there different communities and organi community organization um, resources that are available to you and to your students, faculty and staff, too, within your surrounding institution? Um, do some of that education. Um, second, I would say, listen, um, one thing that I've heard over the over my time working with our Asian student community um, is that they feel invisible, that mm -hmm. they don't ever really get a chance to talk about the things that, um, you know, that have happened or that are going on in their lives that are sometimes negative, sometimes difficult. Um, they don't necessarily um, get heard in those moments where they have a great idea and they're leaders and, you know, their idea doesn't usually rise to the top of being recognized, you know, so listen, mm -hmm. you know, make sure that you're, you're really trying to, to understand and to find moments where you can be a good ally. And that goes to them to amplify. So then when you listen, you can then lift that voice up to the next level. Um, you can speak people's names in spaces where they might get, you know, um, recognition, they might be able to, you know, get a, a position or a job or even just a, a thank you or acknowledgement of their contribution. Um, I think that those those are really important. And you can amplify these voices, too, by just even the things that you pick to have as programs and events or speakers on your campus. So think about the last time you might have had an Asian or Asian American Pacific Islander or South Asian speaker on campus 
who spoke about their identity. So not just somebody who was, let's say, an engineer who happened to be Asian, but somebody who actually talked about how that identity and their, you know, perhaps their academic area and how, how those things sort of coalesced. So think about those things like when was the last time you read a book and or had a book club on the Asian experience? Um, and there are several that are, are wonderful. Um, minor feelings um, is one that's coming up and, and it's on my list next. Um, I have some other resources I shared. I think um, Peter Ho Davies, who I had the pleasure of actually having a conversation with last week, um, has this fantastic wow. book called The Fortunes. And he is an Annisfield Wolf Book Award winner. Um, and these book awards are given to books that tackle racism and diversity. So I really think he would, that book would be fantastic for you to look at because it does go through history. So it follows four different people. Um, and Vincent Chin's story is one of those stories. And so um, I would highly recommend that. And then finally, be an upstander. And as Meg um, said, you know, the Hollaback has the several different anti-Asian harassment um, you know, upstander trainings that you can go to and learn how you can speak up and speak out. Um, and, it, and it doesn't even mean that, you you know, it, it might not be like in the middle of something where there's a, a, a violent situation happening. But even when somebody makes a joke, like what can you say or do when somebody says something that they think is funny, but is ex it, it, at the expense of our Asian community? Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps even when there are no Asian folks present, you know, it's not even about doing this because you want to protect somebody in the moment. It, it's about standing up because it's wrong, even, you know, when there's no one else there that might have that identity. So how can you be this upstander and address things when they happen, or even look at policies and, and programs at your institution that might be lacking? Like, do, are you, do you have, you know, uh, diverse programs, but for some reason you don't celebrate the Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, but you celebrate all other heritage uh -huh. months, things like that. So I just, I think those would be ways to be upstanders um, in a variety of, of points of interest. And we've had some great questions about chat. Um, Naomi Reed has said he would be really interested or she would be interested in a book group if you're running one, um, but that you had recommended several um, several books. So um, in our, our slides, we've got a link out to Peter Ho Davies. Um, and I, so I, that's there um, for folks. And the, can you say again, the most recent title? Cause he's written many amazing things, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so Peter actually, yeah, he does have a new book out um, and he, he wrote the Welsh, the Welsh girl as well. Um, but um, other folks who I think would be really great. Kathy Park Hong wrote minor feelings um, an Asian American reckoning. And I think that would be an excellent book to read and to understand sort of what, what that experience, what the feelings and sort of, um, you know, as I read some of the reviews of it, I'm like, wow, I bet you I'm going to really <laughs> relate to a lot of what, what is said in this book. Um, Frank Wu wrote yellow, which is um, an excellent book about history and really looking beyond sort of this black white, binary of race. Um, and so I'm reading, I'm reading that now. And, and there's so many different books. Um, if you want, you know, one of our, our first year experience books um, at my past institution was When the Emperor Was Divine, which gave sort of a more in-depth look at um, a Japanese internment and, and what families experienced, what they lost. Um, you know, I think a lot of times 
people don't realize that the majority of people who were interned in these um, these camps were um, were citizens of the United States. You know, like and and imagine, you know, and, and as you think about this legacy, um, you know, that the Japanese American Citizens League they were the first to really stand in solidarity with our our South Asian and our Muslim communities after 9-11 to say, do not do to them what you did to our community. Um, and, and I think that the those moments of solidarity and fighting against, you know, this potential injustice again, it, it, those things are really powerful. So there's tons of other books right now there, you know, you could look up Penguin and um, the, you know, different uh, publishers, they have Asian American Pacific Islander books right now, like on, um, they have lists right now that you can, can see, um, that are really powerful to look at as far as what's going on. I think one of the book club of the month books, I think is like adobo and arsenic. And it is about a Philippine, it's the kind of a, kind of like a mystery, but the characters are Filipino and I, I have that and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that as like my sort of just fun book, but has Asian characters. And I, and I think that if you have families and you have people that are young, that are important to you in your life, so they may not be your own children or whatnot, please expose them to characters and books with people who are from all different identities, um, the Asian communities, the South, you know, South Asian communities, our Latinx community, our Middle Eastern communities, our African-American and Black communities, you know, um, Native communities and Indigenous communities, like make sure those are part of how you're um, sharing so that that one single story, that one dominant, you know, sort of thought out there isn't the only thing that they hear. That's so, you know, it's amazing how books can be even historical fiction, right, can open us um, up to so many. That was how I learned about the Japanese internment camps um, as an elementary school student was checking a book out of the library that was a non, that was a fictional um, history. Um, Zara shared with us Warrior Lessons by Phoebe Ng, um, and we've got uh, several other resources um, up here um, as well. And um, I, we are working through the PBS documentary, Asian Americans, and that has been um, eye-opening to our family. And I think, um, I think it's freely available this month um, to stream. So um, we've linked to that as well. Um, Solana had a really great question. And, and you had mentioned this, AAPI Heritage Month is in May when many of us are closing out, you know, where, where it's that month where graduation is really the big focus. So what can we do at our institutions um, to make sure that we're, we're celebrating and honoring um, that, that month? And we only have a few minutes, so I apologize, but would love your feedback on that name. Sure, absolutely. So I would say plan early and don't let being in May be an obstacle um, because there's there, you know, one thing that people always forget is you have students, but then you have faculty and staff and other folks who are on your campus all the time. They don't leave. And so these are opportunities to do programs for them as well. And in this you know, hopefully soon post-pandemic world, we've learned that we actually can do a lot of things virtually. So you can still have the speakers and the, the book clubs and the events um, virtually um, if folks are going away, but perhaps there's a way to, um, you know, work with a small group, a committee of some sort. I would work with your multicultural affairs or diversity, inclusion mm -hmm. offices, identity centers, what, what, whatever you have, and to say, okay, we, we want to have some type of recognition for this um, this community's heritage month because we do it for many other community and cultures and um, oftentimes we do let this one go because it's in May and we sort of are tired and a lot of those things are obstacles for us. So plan early, 
um, set a goal of how many programs you want to have, be okay with virtual events, and then plan for events available to faculty and staff. You know, if you have a faculty staff group, we have an Asian faculty association, maybe they have a general body meeting, it's open to everybody. Maybe, you know, there are ways to incorporate employees into this as well. Um, you can even do movie clubs. We have, there's several different films. Um, our, you, you can go on Hulu, Netflix, there's typically a list of different films um, there that you can watch and uh, you can have a conversation afterwards. So there's there's tons of things to do. We've had, um, we have a poet coming tomorrow. We had Peter Ho Davies. Um, we had Dr. Mamka Akapati from um, University of Pennsylvania come and talk to us about PETA history. Uh, we've had some panels with students. Um, we've had, we have an alumni panel as well coming up. We've done mm. the Hollaback thing. Like there's things that there's always something. And then your community. Don't forget your surrounding community. There may be a um, Asian festival. We have a Cleveland Asian festival in May every year. Link to those types of things. Um, put some money into those communities if you can. They've lost a lot this past year and a half. A lot of our Asian restaurants and stores have closed because they've been not only hit by the COVID pandemic, but the racial injustice pandemic mm -hmm. where people have um, shied away because they thought they could catch for some reason, COVID more if they were around Asian folks in restaurants. All important ideas. And um, we've had a, a chat in that their institution, they host um, during April, they celebrate so that they can make sure that they honor. Um, so certainly I think we can always think flexibly too about dates. Um, and I, I love your reminder about how important it is that we reach out to our communities. Um, and, and you had, had said that, um, I can't remember the percentage that you shared with me, Naomi, of um, Asian-owned restaurants that had um, Yeah, I think closed. it was April 2020, 50% um, of our, our Chinese restaurants, I think, had closed. I mean, in the United States, that's ridiculous. Like, that's all a huge number. And that was, I think, from restaurants, one of the, the um, sort of restaurant magazines that I was looking at. I couldn't believe that. I thought, wow. But then it made a lot of sense to me because people were not um, patronizing. And actually uh, here in Cleveland, we have a dumpling place that had been getting threatening phone calls so much, so much so that one of our council members said, we're going to cash mob this place because we don't want them to, you know, go away. They're a staple within our, our um, Asia town community. Um, and so they had some days where they, they like really encouraged people to go and, and, um, and buy from them so that we could keep them afloat. So those are, you know, I'm sure there's stuff like that across the country. So, check those things out, see that you, you know, if there's ways you can connect your institution to them, that way you don't have to necessarily program, but you can work with the community to, um, to support what they're doing. Awesome. Well, Naomi, we are at 1245, according to my um, clock here, um, and we have some wonderful additions from um, our, our audience. Um, Denise has shared that um, they're supporting grads and hosting a virtual, um, the APIDA uh, graduation celebration. So I, I love that that's another way that we can honor and celebrate um, our students. So um, thank you. What an incredible list of resources. Um, and we're, we're, I'm just so grateful, Naomi, for your time, um, for everything you've shared with us. Um, 
for sharing some of your story with us. Um, this has just been an incredible um, teaching opportunity. Um, Alexa has asked um, if the recording will be emailed. Yes. Um, so we bundle all of this up. Um, and by Monday, um, if you're um, on our call today, you will uh, get a recording of that. Also, just as a reminder, this is a podcast. Um, so it, we will bundle that up as well. And it'll be available on all um, podcasting platforms on Monday. And Naomi will get you that um, information as well if you want to share it with anyone in your communities. Um, but just so incredibly grateful um, for Naomi and, and the, the gift of her time today and teaching. Naomi, we wish you all the best as you guys wrap up a very extended graduation season this year at Case Western Reserve. Thank <laughs> you. Kind of Thank you all. We appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at innovativeeducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives. Thank you.